All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Parental notification on sexually explicit material on their kids' subject matter. How about racism and sexism in schools? And then finally, the Born Alive Act. What do all of these have in common? This is legislation that we were talking about over the last couple of days in the Virginia General Assembly and actually has implications across the country. We're going to be talking about that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Okay, first things first. For those of you who have been with us for a while now, you're probably wondering, why are the podcasts being published so late in the evening? First of all, I just want to apologize because I know that you know you get into a certain pattern with respect to listening to certain things, and when it publishes at different times, it can be frustrating. Let me explain. Right now, because I am in legislative session, I wake up in the morning, I get in there fairly early to the Capitol building, over to the office building, and we have subcommittees, full committees, floor session, debates, et cetera. And so there's a lot going on, and now I've gotten to the point where I don't get home until late, and that's when we're recording these. So we're trying to get them out, we're trying to be consistent, but there's a little bit of delay sometimes based off of the legislative schedule and the schedule of sessions. So again, thank you for bearing with us. All right, first things first, let's talk about what has been going on right now. We've just gone through what we call crossover. This is when all of the bills that were submitted by the House of Delegates go through the process, and now we have to vote on them before they go over to the Senate side to basically go through the process all over again. So we've had a lot of bills. To give you an idea, today on the floor of the House of Delegates, we voted on over 200 bills, right? 200 bills in one day. These are bills that have gone through, again, subcommittee, full committee, um, they've gone through what we call three readings on the floor, which means if you look at our calendar, which shows us all the bills that are coming up before we vote, we have first reading, which is kind of like a heads up, right? Like just letting everyone know, hey, this bill's on the floor calendar. Then you have the second reading. This is where we actually debate about the bills. This is where you go through a more elaborate explanation and both sides kind of hash it out on the floor. And then you have third reading. Third reading is when we actually vote on the bill. And now just because you're on third reading, you've already had a debate on second reading, doesn't mean that people still don't get up and speak some more. But over the last two days, that's what's been going on. And to give you an idea, on Monday, right, we spent, gosh, I think it was over 12 hours on the floor just going through hundreds of bills uh, so that we could get them all voted on today so we can go through the process of sending it over to the Senate, and the Senate will now send over their bills to us. So why did I mention the three bills uh, in kind of the intro here on, on why those are important, why I think they're relevant to a national audience? Uh, well, again, I think these bills have larger implication for a lot of debates that are going on all across the country, especially with respect to our education system and obviously with some of the decisions that are being made in the Supreme Court, like Dobbs. So let's start with the first one. And that had to do with parental notification of sexually explicit material within their kids' 
textbooks or curriculum or libraries, et cetera. Now, if you've been paying attention on social media, um, you, you've seen a lot of things that have been put out by parents expressing some concern about some of the books that either showed up into their kids' you know, AP English class or that they found within the school library. Um, and, and these parents have gone to their local school boards and they've expressed concern about some of the content because some of the content is pretty rough. Now, in some respects, you can say, okay, some of this is historical. Maybe they're explaining what happened with respect to uh, a rape that took place in a classical piece of literature or with respect to what was going on with slavery. Other stuff includes things like bestiality. There's been some other stuff that uh, could really be described as almost quasi-pornographic uh, or even pedophilia in some instances with respect to some of the books that have made it into libraries or made it into curriculum. And so in Virginia, one of the ways that we've tried to combat this is we said, look, we understand there's a distinction. There's a distinction between something that is blatantly pornographic and there's a distinction between something that may have some sort of relevancy to the literature or to the historical period that you're talking about. But if there's going to be something sexually explicit, right? So one of the common examples that is brought up is this book called Beloved, which uh, again is a Pulitzer Prize winning um, author. We've all been told that the only reason why we could have any problem with Beloved being taught within our high schools is because we're all a bunch of sexist racists. Okay, that may be one explanation. Let me offer another one. Um, there was a senator, a state senator in Virginia a couple years back, Senator Tom Garrett, great guy. And he got up there and he started reading off as we were having this debate about, again, just notifying parents, right? That's one of the most important things you need to understand about the bill. Nothing in the bill was saying that this book was going to be banned. Right, that's that's what the Democrats are claiming. They're all coming in and saying, "Oh, you want to ban books? You want to burn books? You want to..." Nothing in the bill banned the book. Nothing in the bill prevented the book from being a part of the curriculum. What it said was is that if you're going to have a book and it's going to contain sexually explicit material, you need to notify the parent. And, and this is important for a couple of reasons. One, the parent can say, "You know what? I think this is a little much, or I don't necessarily like this. I don't want my kid reading this. Can you provide an alternative assignment for them?" Or you could just give the parents a head up so they could actually have a conversation with their child about what they're reading so they know and they might be able to explain things to them, right? Most people look at this and think, well, this is fairly reasonable. Um, okay, not Delegate Lopez, who got on the floor the other day and essentially claimed that uh, we were listening to the lowest common denominator, right? So again, if you're a parent that's concerned and might want notification before you get a book which has very graphic depictions of bestiality, right? This is, this is true. Again, Tom Garrett got up in the state Senate, started reading off you know, content from this book, and the same Democrat senators that were accusing all of us of wanting to burn books or ban books lost their minds, called the point of order, and tried to get all of the Senate pages off the floor. And to give you an idea, Senate pages are, are between 13 and 14. So especially on the 14th side, they're within the range of students that could potentially be assigned this book. So they were trying to kick all the pages off the floor and they were furious at Senator Garrett for discussing sexually explicit materials on the floor of the Senate until Senator Garrett told them that, yes, I'm reading from one of the books that the parents have been talking to us about and clearly by your reaction, you understand that there could potentially be a problem with this or at least some concern with respect to sort of the sort of content that our students might be consuming within high school. Right? But no, no, no. Here we are several years later having the same debate, talking about just parental notification and parental options. And, and the statement from the left is the same. Right? No, no, no. You're a book burner. Right? This is secretly about you not wanting to teach hard history. Or it's secretly about you being a racist against the author of this particular book. I can guarantee you, I'm willing to bet most parents, like me, 
didn't know who the author of some of these books were, right? We, we didn't have any preconceived notions about who the author may or may not be or have any animosity toward them based off of what their skin color might have been. I think that the overwhelming concern was, okay, these are some, these are some pretty weighty you know, matters. Uh, these are some pretty vivid descriptions of things that are going on. I, I would like to know about this. So again, I can either say, I don't think this is appropriate for my child or, hey, I want to be able to sit down and talk with my child so that we can actually explain this and so they're not com caught completely off guard. But again, no, from the left, Delegate Lopez got up there and said that we were appealing to the lowest common denominator or the louder voices in the room. And that's not what we should be doing. Well, the lowest common denominator he's referring to is, again, parents. It's parents that are concerned about this sort of content. And again, are not saying ban it. They're not saying set the books on fire. They're simply saying, we want to be notified before this is assigned or before this is something that my child ends up reading. Right? So that's the nature of where the debate is at. Right? And there's a reason why the press is going with this narrative that what we're legislating is burning books. And, and I am sure that the press can find somebody out there that wants to actually ban books or wants to actually burn books. But that's not what the bill does. That's not what the law does. The law says you will notify the parent if there's sexually explicit material and you will give them an opt-out. There you go. Now, if, if you don't like that as a parent, if you think, if you think that there's nothing wrong with, with the particular literature that's being assigned, great. You, you don't got to raise any concern whatsoever. Now you know. Maybe you want to sit down and have a conversation with your kid before they get to that particular chapter. Maybe you don't. Your business. But no, that's not good enough. They don't want the parents to have notification because they're afraid some parents might come back and say, I don't like this particular content. And, and it begs the question, what are you so afraid of notifying parents? And I think some of this goes into the larger argument that we've already seen before that we saw with um, Terry McAuliffe when he was running for governor against Glenn Youngkin in Virginia where he basically said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what to teach. And, and really what we're seeing is that more and more, they, don't, they want as little parental involvement in the student's education as possible unless that parent essentially rubber stamps whatever the left is determined is appropriate curriculum. Like, like if you want to come alongside and continue to reinforce at home whatever they've decided to use within the school, then they don't mind parental involvement. But the moment you step in and have the audacity as a parent to say, I don't think this is appropriate, well, now you need to sit down, shut up, and do as you're told, or you're a racist, you're a sexist, you're ignorant, you're the lowest common denominator, right? If that doesn't piss you off as a parent, I would recommend you pay more attention because this should, this should infuriate you. As I'm sitting there listening to this as a parent, as a parent thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I'm about to vote on a bill which tells every other parent in the room, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, you now have the ability to make a decision for your own child with respect to what they read. That's it. But, but I would also like to have that option as well. And that's not good enough for the other side? So don't, don't preach to me about diversity of thought or compassion or tolerance or understanding for different worldviews if you're essentially going to tell me that, no, your child can be assigned this and you don't, get a, you don't, you don't have any right to know ahead of time. And even if, even if the other parent doesn't have a problem with it, no, 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 it's not good enough that they can still do what they want. They need to create a situation where you can't do what you want. And I find that really problematic. And, and again, this was an interesting floor debate that we had. And one of the things that I encouraged parents when I got up and actually spoke to this bill, because I was just, I was infuriated by what I was hearing on the floor, is parents need to be watching this floor debate, this exchange, as they watch a Democrat legislator from Northern Virginia get up and essentially compare them to the lowest common denominator if they want a bill like this that would simply give them notification. Right? I, I find that to be a, a pretty significant problem.
All right, so that was one of the first issues that, that uh, we talked about. Um, some of the other ones that, that came up. Today on the floor on the third reading, uh, we had the Born Alive Act, right, which was a piece of legislation that I carried. And what the Born Alive Act does is it says that if, um, if a mother goes through the process of having an abortion and the baby is born alive anyway, so the baby is born, the abortion did not kill the child, and now we're talking a baby that is completely out of the womb. Um, if that baby survives, then the medical professionals that are present have an obligation to provide reasonable medical care to try to save the child's life. So essentially what we're saying, and, and if you don't have the medical equipment necessary to do that, then you need to make the attempt to get them to a hospital. Call 911. But what we're, we're, we're making is a very, very clear line of demarcation. We're saying that at the point where the child has been born and the child is alive, then as a medical professional, you have a, a basic duty to be able to try to preserve that life. Now, why do we think this is necessary? Because some people will say, well, Nick, you know, Nick, why do you need a bill like this? Isn't this covered by laws governing infanticide? And the answer is no. Infanticide is when someone actively kills a child. But what we heard a couple of years ago was Governor Ralph Northam Democrat for Virginia, you might know him as the guy that had pictures of wearing a KKK robe and blackface in his yearbook, right? Democrat governor of Virginia. He actually described on a, on a live radio show what would happen in a situation like this where he said, well, the child would be born, the child would be made comfortable, and then a conversation would ensue with respect to what they wanted to do with the child. And there was a lot of people who were very understandably horrified by this idea that a child could be born into those circumstances to include after an abortion that didn't succeed in killing the child, that the child could be born and still left to die, that there was essentially no obligation upon the medical professionals at that point to render aid, to render reasonable medical care to try to save the child's life. Now, here's my question. Based off of a lot of the arguments that we typically hear from our Democrat colleagues, on the issue of abortion. How many Democrats, we have 48 in the House of Delegates, how many Democrats do you think said, okay, you know what, this is reasonable. We're not even talking about abortion anymore. We're talking about a child that managed to be born alive despite an attempt at an abortion. And at that point, look, all of the arguments that, that the left typically uses, you know, it's just a clump of cells. It's a woman's body. Uh, don't interfere between the, the doctor and their patient. Like Those arguments go out the window. Now, again, I don't think those arguments you know, make sense when the baby is in the womb, but let's assume for the sake of the argument, that's what the left typically says. Okay, well, now when the baby's born, we're not talking about a clump of cells. Nobody thinks it's a clump of cells, right? We're, we're, we're not talking about anything other than an innocent live human being, right? We're not talking about something that's a part of the mother. Baby's out of the mother, right? We're, we're not talking about any of those things. So how many Democrats out of 48 in the House of Delegates do you think looked at that and said, you know what, yeah, at this point, a doctor should render aid or care in order to try to save the child's life? The answer is zero. None of them. Not one Democrat in the House of Delegates voted for the Born Alive Act. Now, they tried to make the argument that this wasn't necessary. I explained why it was necessary. They tried to make the argument that, well, this is, a, this is a horrible situation where you could have a child born where 
they weren't viable, right? They, they, there's no way that they could survive outside the womb. Okay, that could be a scenario. But in that scenario, there are still things like do, na- do not resuscitate laws. There's still, there's still laws which govern a, a parent's authority if, if the child is legitimately not going to end up surviving. The question is, is in that moment, when perhaps the parent cannot directly intervene, right? In that moment, or when the child is born and is completely viable, what is the obligation of the doctor in that moment? Like, is that not a fair question? And I pointed out that I've actually stood at an, at an event before and helped hold up a woman that is suffering from cerebral palsy who was an abortion survivor. I have another very good friend of mine who is an abortion survivor. Both of them, when they were born, had complications as a result of the abortion. They were perfectly viable. And if it wasn't for somebody intervening to save their life, they would have died. And we know that there's been situations where children have been left to die. Go look at the Gosnell documentary. So this is very clear. Baby is born. Baby is alive. Baby is entitled to basic medical care. Not one Democrat can compel themselves to vote for it. Even when we brought an abortion survivor to actually explain their story and explain why this bill was necessary and important. Nope. Planned Parenthood got up with numerous people and all explained why they thought this was a potential threat to doctors and abortionists. Well, again, I have to ask the question. Because I, I am tired of hearing this argument that any of us that are pro-life are just completely unreasonable when all Democrats want is for abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. Ladies and gentlemen, we weren't even talking about abortion anymore. We were talking about a child that had managed to survive an abortion, had been born alive outside of the mother, separate. That is the, the medical professional's patient at that moment, and they still, still could not pull themselves to vote for it when Planned Parenthood stands up and says, you better not. So if you want to know where the actual status of the abortion debate is in this country, that's where it's at. It's not not safe, legal, and rare like the Democratic Party used to go by. It is any time for any reason at a taxpayer's expense. And essentially, they they want to claim that not only is this a right, but that this is purely about health care. And then this is really about empowerment. Can someone explain to me, where is the right, where is the healthcare involved, where is the empowerment involved of a child being born alive and being left to die on a table by an abortionist? By the way, the bill was also very clear. The woman could not be prosecuted. The mother could not be prosecuted under any conditions with respect to this bill. This was all about telling an abortionist or whatever medical professional was attempting to perform an abortion, if that child was born alive, they needed to interfere and render reasonable medical aid or to try to get them to a place where reasonable medical aid could be provided for them. And every, not one Democrat voted for it. So the next time I hear one of my Democrat colleagues lecturing me about taking care of the poor or the needy or the least of these or the vulnerable or the most marginalized within our society, would it be fair for me to remind them that when we had a chance to do all of those things for, for, for a person, for a, a, a boy, a little boy or a little girl, a baby, that certainly meets all of the criteria for being vulnerable and helpless and in need of our support and assistance, they weren't willing to show up for them. But if I don't vote to double the minimum wage, 
then, then we're bad guys. We're mean. We don't care about the helpless or the least of these, as one of our Democrat colleagues put it. Right? The cognitive dissonance, which is required to one minute make that statement and the next minute not just turn your head, but actually throw up a no vote to make sure a child born under those circumstances is rendered basic medical aid, I think is not only intellectually dishonest and inconsistent, I think it's morally, morally abhorrent. But that's, that's the state of the debate. That's the state of the debate in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and I'm willing to bet that's the state of the debate in a lot of places in this country, unfortunately. And we'll see what happens on, on the Supreme Court level. All right, finally, let's go to our third thing that I think is, is relevant, because if you look at what's going on, and again, with school boards all across the country right now, there's this problem with things like CRT and other things being pushed onto our students. Now, again, Democrats have claimed forever CRT is nowhere in our schools. We pointed out definitively in Virginia through the Virginia Department of Education website, their roadmap to equity, where they were pushing CRT onto our teachers. So essentially what they were doing was they weren't going into the classroom and saying, okay, kids, now we're going to discuss critical race theory. No, what they were doing was, was far worse. What they were doing is they were telling all of our teachers in Virginia that if you wanted to get your license or renew your license, you had to go through this training. And then you went onto their website, and how was it heavily influenced? Well, it was heavily influenced through critical race theory. And so essentially what the expectation was is the teachers were going to learn all this through their training then go into the classroom, and regardless of what subject matter they taught, they were expected to teach it to some degree through the lens of critical race theory. Right. So we were able to address all of this. So a lot of parents said, look, we don't want this sort of stuff in our classroom. We would like to focus on things like, oh, I don't know, literacy, math skills, understanding science. Like these would all be great things before we get into, oh, I don't know, complex theories essentially suggesting that you might be an oppressor or an oppressed class based off of your skin color. Now, what sort of bill would we bring in order to address that? Well, the bill that we came up with did not ban CRT. We didn't ban CRT. Um, we didn't say that you couldn't talk about racism or sexism or disparity. We didn't do any of that. What the bill actually said was, is that you essentially could not promote the idea that someone is inherently good or bad based off of their race or their sex. You could not promote racism or sexism within the public school system. That's what the bill did. Now, there were some Democrats that got up and said, well, we're concerned on... on you know, how are you going to enforce this or how are certain teachers going to look at it? Okay, great. We can, have some, we can have some disagreements on that. But the overwhelming majority of the arguments that were made about this was saying that, well, if you pass this bill, it's because you don't want to teach hard, inconvenient parts of American history. Really? I, I understand that's your concern, but the thing is, is we're not legislating your concern. We're legislating, we're, we're writing something very, very specific. And you could go in and you could read the text of the bill. It said that, look, you can't promote the idea that someone is inherently you know, good or bad or that someone is inherently responsible for the actions of someone else because they happen to be the same race or the same sex. So again, this, this, this whole idea was it didn't prevent educating anybody on any of these things. It just said we don't want our teachers to get up in front of a classroom and promote the idea that you are good or bad based off of your race or good or bad based off of your sex. There you go. Guess how many Democrats voted for it? Zero. 
And it, and it was funny because they used this mechanism which didn't make any sense. They kept adding these floor amendments and they said, you know, we, we want to add a floor amendment that says that nothing within this bill should suggest that, you know, uh, teachers would not be allowed to teach about the Jim Crow laws. Well, yeah, the bill is originally written wouldn't prevent anybody from teaching Jim Crow laws. Now, if somebody got up and said, Here, here's Jim Crow laws, this was put in place by white people, and therefore, if you're white, then you're complicit with Jim Crow laws. That would be prevented. But teaching about Jim Crow laws? No, none of that would be prevented. So they kept putting all these different formats in there. Now, again, they were doing this to make a point, but here was, here was the part where it became the biggest self-own on behalf of the Democrats for this legislative session. When you put in a specific section of code that says, notwithstanding this piece of legislation, you have to still be able to teach this, okay? When you have a legal challenge to the bill and a judge looks at that, they say, okay, well, they specifically mentioned this, but they didn't mention this over here. And so now it affects the way that the court would look at that bill. So essentially, the Democrats were creating a situation with the bill where it would actually, where even though the original bill was fine, they were creating a situation with their floor amendments that would actually turn the bill into something that they feared would happen, right? So they were the ones screwing up the bill in accordance with what they claimed their concerns were. That's how absurd this all was. And, and to be honest, I was very tempted because they kept putting all these floor amendments saying, that, okay, you, you got to be able to teach about the three-fifths compromise. You got to be able to teach about Jim Crow, or you got to be able to teach about disparities. And again, nothing in the bill would have prevented you from teaching any of those things. But I was tempted to put in a floor amendment that said, yeah, and we also want teachers to understand that they have to teach about the largest, best financed, best organized organization pushing white supremacy in U.S. history, and that was the Democratic Party. Something tells me they wouldn't have been as cool with that floor amendment, but that's a true statement because the Democratic Party was the largest, best organized, most powerful, most well-funded advocacy group on behalf of white supremacy for over 150 years. Now, if I went in and I taught that not only is that true, but that anybody that associates themselves with the Democratic Party today is, there how, is somehow culpable or responsible for decisions the Democratic Party made 50 years ago or 60 years ago, you think some of my Democrat colleagues might be a little bit upset with that? You think that they might be thinking that maybe there was some context lacking in that particular lesson plan? Yeah, I'm willing to bet they would. But strangely enough, they don't see it when the curriculum is being specifically manipulated in order to push a left-wing narrative as if it's the only way to address a particular problem. And that's why when we brought this legislation, we, we very narrowly crafted it. We wanted to make very, very clear that we were not banning a particular, you know, you know we weren't banning critical race theory. What we were saying is, is we don't want any of our teachers in public school to get up and to promote racism or sexism or the idea that you are somehow you know, bad or responsible for things you never participated in because your skin tone happens to be the same or similar to somebody that did something bad before you. I think that's fairly reasonable. Our Democrat colleagues thought it was just horrible and horrendous. And oh my gosh, we had to have something like a two-hour floor debate on this issue. Where again, if you disagreed with them, you were a horrible, bitter, sexist racist. Even though the very thing that we were trying to prevent in the classism was racism and sexism. But this is the problem that we have. If you want to know, again, what is the state of the debate with the other side of the aisle? At least in Virginia, and I'm willing to bet this is replicated in many places across the country. The idea that you can sit down and have a reasonable discussion with somebody, and even if you disagree, come away and say, okay, you know what? I see your point. Maybe there's a way we can make it better. 
Or I see your point, we're going to agree to disagree, but we can continue to have this discussion through the political process. No, no, no. It's do what we want or you're a racist. I'm sorry. I, I said at the beginning of the session, I'm not putting up with that crap anymore. Either make a good argument okay, or, or accept the fact that I'm no longer going to listen to you because I'm not going to listen to ad hominem attacks. I'm not going to listen to you know, bad arguments. I'm not going to listen to uh, insults, which essentially don't even attempt to make an argument. Right? Because if your position was as true and as pure and as great as you think it is, then you probably shouldn't have a lot of trouble making a reasonable argument for what you're trying to do or what you're trying to oppose. So those are the three things. Quick recap, right? It was the parental notification for sex, excuse me, sexually explicit material within um, kids' curriculum. Again, didn't ban a single book. Didn't advocate for a single book to be burned. It simply said that when, when a part of the curriculum includes sexually explicit material, give the parent notification, right? If, if the parent is really uncomfortable with it, give them an opt-out option. There you go, right? I, I think that's fairly reasonable, but again, if you think that's something that you could potentially support, Delegate Lopez from the Democratic Party here in Virginia thinks that you're the lowest common denominator, right? Born Alive Act. Again, this wasn't even about abortion. This is talking about a baby that has been born. So the abortionist attempted to abort the child. The child was born alive anyway. We're now saying at that point, you have to render reasonable medical aid to try to save the child. Planned Parenthood came up in force and said, no, this is totally unacceptable. To the point where not a single Democrat voted for the bill. The Born Alive Act. And every time they tried to say, this bill is not even necessary, all I had to do was quote Governor Ralph Northam, who, by the way, was a, a, I think he was a pediatric surgeon. I got to quote him explaining exactly how something like that could happen in Virginia right now and be entirely legal. But didn't matter. Not a single Democrat voted for it. Right? Um, and then finally, this last instance, what I, I won't explain again because I just explained it. But again, this is where we're at. This is where we're at. It, it's becoming very, very difficult to just have a reasonable conversation with the other side. And, and I think part of that, part of that comes from the fact that, one, for the longest time, they've been so used to the media, to popular culture, to academia, just being on their side. And so they could say these things and they can make these accusations and they would just be regurgitated throughout popular culture. And so they got to the point where they, they kind of figured like they could make any accusation they wanted and voters would believe it. Because my gosh, why would you know, respectable people within you know, politics, whatever that means, right? Why would those people make such wild outlandish claims that there wasn't an element of truth to it? And what we started to realize is the reason why they make those claims without there being an element of truth to it is because A, popular culture let them get away with it, and B, it won them elections. But then when people started realizing that they were going to be subject to the actual policy positions they were putting out there, or when people did become subject to the policy positions they put out, they rebelled against it. And when they brought up valid, reasonable concerns, they, were, they got told, oh, well, now you're a racist too. And they weren't buying it. And so because I think a lot of Democrats, again, not all, there's, there's some Democrats out there that will go out there and we have good floor discussions. But so many of them have gotten to the point where they've just gotten so used to this. But quite frankly, I, I think it's intellectual laziness. Because when you don't have to make a good argument to get what you want, at, at some point, you get out of practice of making good arguments. And so now they're continually getting up there and, again, making old, tired arguments or accusations masquerading as arguments. And now they're wondering why it doesn't have the same effect. Well, because, again, a lot of people are pretty much have, have <laughs> woke up to the, the game that is being played and they're not having it anymore. 
All right, let's end on, on a happy note. Um, so on our TikTok page, um, I, I did a, a really quick video because Valentine's Day is one of the few holidays that we have during session. It's the, the holiday that we actually kind of decorate everything for. And this used to be a big thing when I first came into the General Assembly about seven years ago where everyone decorated. And then for a while, we kind of, we moved, um, we moved buildings and it, and it fell off. Well, it was something that I enjoyed with my kids. And when I first came into the General Assembly, like my youngest daughter was seven. Now she's 14. Um, you know, my, my son's now 16. My oldest daughter's now 19. So you know, my kids were still relatively little when I first came into the General Assembly, and this is one of the things that they came down to help Daddy decorate the office, decorate the hallway, and, and uh, you know, they would work with Miss Gina, who's my chief of staff, and they work with Miss Brenda, who's our, our administrative assistant, and they just really enjoyed it. And so we said, look, we don't care if nobody else is going to do this. We're going to continue to do it. And year after year, we continued to do it, and sometimes we were the only ones. And now we're on a section of a hallway where we've got a bunch of delegates that love doing this. I'm going to tell you right now, uh, if you go to the, the hallway on the fourth floor in the Pocahontas building in Richmond, Virginia, um, over on our side, it literally looks like I handed my kids $100 worth of dollar store Valentine decorations and a Red Bull and told them to decorate uh, because it's everywhere, right? It's all over the place. We'll, we'll, we'll show you the clip or you can go on to TikTok and see it. Uh, but it really, it's, it's one of those fun things that we get to do that, again, I, I think on some level kind of humanizes all of this. Because uh, as frustrated as I get with some of my colleagues, and I'm sure as frustrated as they get with me, um, it's one of those things where we get to spend a good time with with our kids. Uh, the other you know delegates get into it, um, our staff gets into it, and it ends up being a fun thing where we just get to come together for a second, kind of forget all of the the controversy just for a moment, um, and decorate and have a good time and enjoy just you know friendship, family. And so again, I encourage you to take a look at it because, like I said, man, it is gooey. It looks like Cupid threw up in there. Uh, but anyways, once again, uh, thank you for joining us on Making the Argument. Uh, we will see you next episode. Once again, I just want to quickly apologize for you know some of the delays right now. But again, during session, it's my job to come down here and actually make the argument on the floor, in the committee, to fight for the very ideals and freedoms that protect a free society. Thank you for joining Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.